Yo, what's good everyone? It's Anushan and you're listening to Brown Men Won't Jump. Yo, 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 what's good? Welcome to Brown Men Won't Jump. I got my man AC here. What is good, guys? And I'm Eric. We're here to talk about today the series between the Suns and the Bucks, the swing and momentum that seemingly has been developing over the last two games, and to see the future outlook on what's going to happen in the next four games. AC, so what about our man Giannis right now? I mean, I'm almost hesitant to even say anything because I'm afraid I'm going to be overreacting here. He's just been that spectacular. You know, he joined Shaq with this spectacular performance in games two and three as the only other player in NBA history with at least 40 points and 10 rebounds in back-to-back finals games. I mean, it's that level of dominance right now we're seeing from Giannis. Oh yeah, big facts. I mean, and this hasn't really been spoken about and we've been seeing this like developing within the last two games of the net series. But Giannis seems to be taking a proverbial leap, whereas he's been utterly dominant. It doesn't seem as if anyone can stop him. And whenever he's healthy, he seems to be like a force of nature comparable to great players. Like, of course, you mentioned Shaq. He's looked like any great finals run from LeBron. He's looked like Charles Barkley at times in the 93 playoffs. He's looked like Moses Malone during their 4-4-4 run back in 83. This dude has been jaw-dropping. And I feel like I'm eating my words because I was just saying at the start of this playoffs, Giannis might be a number two guy masquerading as a number one. But seemingly, he's figured out that he's this dominant post-presence and he's acting like it. Yeah, Eric, it it seems that Giannis has finally learned that he's flat out unstoppable when he's attacking the rim. He spent most of game three setting screens and slipping to the rim. And when he'd isolate, as you mentioned, he kind of did it from the low block. As the playoffs have gone on, he's taken fewer and fewer threes. And he also has less possessions where he's isolating out on the perimeter where he's catching the ball three-point line in the triple threat as if he's like LeBron James. He's kind of playing a lot more like Shaq. And I think the results are starting to bear that as well. And you mentioned how he's kind of physically imposes will on this series, right? Because we've seen even elite defenders like someone like Mikhail Bridges, they don't have the strength to stay in front of him. And the Suns don't have the personnel to form that wall that was made famous by the Raptors and the Heat the last few years. He's not even bothering anymore to Euro step around players. He's flat out just going right through them or even over them in some instances. And when the Suns have done this thing where they've switched guards onto him, in the past we saw him trying to isolate those kind of guards from the perimeter. But, you know, you made a great comparison there to Charles Barkley or to LeBron. Here, he's either gotten to the post and demanded the ball, or he's dribbled into post-ups like LeBron does and has done for several years now, or like Charles Barkley used to do. Remember, they added the whole five-second back-to-the-basket rule to stop guys like Barkley from just posting up from the three-point line all the way to the rim. Well, Giannis has kind of found a way to do that, and it's making his physical advantage even more overwhelming for the Suns. And I'm worried for the Suns' sake, that physical dominance will only wear down on them more as the series progresses. 
So right now, he looks like some like ungodly amalgamation of if Shaq and LeBron were to have a kid. Right now, and it looks like it'll be Giannis. Like, he's legit averaging for this playoffs a 29, 13, and 5 Jeez. on 56% shooting slits. And let me ask you, Eric, don't you feel like that's kind of been almost understated by the media and the coverage of Giannis? It's like all the focus has been on the fact that he's shooting, you know, an atrocious 18.8% from three or just 57% from the free throw line. But like you said, 29, 13, and five on 56% shooting, that's prime Shaq numbers. Plus he's doing that with elite defense as well. Look, who gives a damn? And you're absolutely correct. The media has highlighted the fact that fans are, doing like counts when he's at the free throw line. So if he's getting to the free throw line over 10 times a game and he's still shooting 56% from the floor while giving you those averages, like in the true scheme of things, he can shoot as poorly as Shaq did from the free throw line. He's still going to dominate you and it's still going to be hard to beat a guy like that as long as he has some good supporting cast. So I, I definitely think his performance has been downplayed, and at crucial moments this postseason, Giannis has come up huge. It actually makes me wonder, Eric, coming into this series, all the talk was about Chris Paul's legacy and what a series win or even a loss would do for him. I can't help but feel that it's really Giannis, though, that has more to gain. One, because he's shown flashes now for several years of being an all-time great player, right? You don't just win back-to-back -back MVPs out of nowhere. But if you can back that up with a championship win, even in a weird season like this, when you consider the fact that his roster is probably a bit subpar and his coaching has been far from ideal throughout this run, it would be an incredible achievement. I, I almost wonder if that's the real story here, a chance for the next great player to, to add a, a championship to his resume. And you and I, we've largely spoken about this in the last week. I initially said that this would mean more to CP3, and the logic was that CP3 is an older guy on his you know, twilight run of his career, presumably. And a championship would solidify what we've been saying about him as the point god. But honestly, CP3 wouldn't be the top 20 guy, in my opinion, if he won this finals, that a two-time MVP, a defensive player of the year at the age of 27, Giannis leapfrogs a lot of guys with a bunch of leg room to stretch out and become a Pantheon-level player. When I say Pantheon-level player, I mean, he can presumably begin to start thinking of himself as probably going into the top 15. I would think he would immediately ascend to like the top 25, top 20 if he were to win a championship and a finals MVP right now. The question, though, will be, can he do that given the limitations that the rest of his roster has shown? And specifically that butt is shown from a coaching standpoint. You know, I, I love Jeff Van Gundy going on yet another rant defending the honor of Coach Bud when apparently it's just totally unacceptable for any of us to criticize anything that Coach Bud does. I know, Eric, you got some thoughts on that. I mean, <laughs> Van Gundy has never seen a coach, even piss poor coaches, that he will allow anyone to even make I, I feel like soft criticisms. I still remember back in the day when LeBron was playing with Mike Brown, which and I, I always think of shoot LeBron it, booby, here. Shoot it, booby, shoot it. Shoot it, shoot the J, booby, shoot it. <laughs> <laughs> when, 
when LeBron was playing with Mike Brown, and Mike Brown is a decent assistant coach, but no one thinks he's a, a particularly good head coach. He had plenty of flaws. Stan Van, I must say Stan Van, brother Jeff Van was one of the, the pundits who would always defend him. I'm just like, dude, like, <laughs> Bud has done a myriad number of things over five seasons, whether it was with the Hawks or the Bucks in the playoffs, that are head scratchers. It's not ridiculous for people to point out that sometimes Bud seems out of his depth when he gets into the playoffs. Now, it seems to me that during this playoffs and at the second half of this regular season, he tried to do some things that he seemed very reticent to do before, like switching, which, I mean, <laughs> we have been calling for them to switch. And this isn't even like us, like casual observer observers have been calling for them to switch for a while, but he finally started doing it. But it, it just seemed like it took a long while for him to do it. And even now... He seems reticent to make game-by-game -game adjustments. Now, some of that is on players because he's not on the court, but it just seems his game plan seems to be very rigid and orthodox. And I, I don't know why that's a big deal to criticize. You mentioned his game plan and his newfound, I don't want to say love of switching, but at least willingness to switch, right? Because for years, everyone got on Bud for not switching and playing almost entirely his base drop defense. Basically, the big man would drop back in the paint on pick and rolls, which would leave them susceptible to teams with guards who could hit threes. This season, we saw him increasingly using switching in the regular season, and then at times in the playoffs, but it was always toward the latter part of the series after the drop scheme failed them. For instance, in the Hawks series, the drop scheme got them kind of skewered in, in game one. And then towards the back part of that series, Bud went almost exclusively to switching in games five and six, particularly in actions that did not involve Trey Young. So coming into this series, it kind of was expected that that's the same route they would go. But actually, they went a totally different route. They went to switching every single screen. I mean, to the point they would even switch when players slip screens. So as a result, instead of Chris Paul and Devin Booker having to score on a stout defender like Drew Holiday, the Suns guards could just pick up on any opponent that they wanted and go at them over and over again. So Chris Paul in particular toyed with the Bucks bigs like Lopez and Portis, but then he also forced switches onto players like Bryn Forbes who struggle in man-to-man -man defense. And then when the Bucks tried to go to drop coverage, the drop was way too low with the center nearly standing in the restricted circle, giving up easy pull-up jumpers to CP3 and Booker. But as the series progressed, Bud has shown some willingness to tinker with that and go to a much more sensible scheme. By game two, the Bucks were a little bit more reluctant to switch. Guards fought through screens and even went under them at times. And personally, I think that going under screens makes a lot of sense against someone like Chris Paul, who, while being a great shooter isn't a Steph Curry or Damian Lillard type who will take and make deep threes, right? Make Chris Paul make a 35 foot three instead of just giving an easy drop or, or, or a basic switch. And by game three, I thought the Bucks really adapted what the Suns were trying to run. Even those complex Spain pick and rolls that the Suns run with multi-tiered actions, they were really kind of figuring out exactly where each person was going and they were on top of that. And they would switch just in the right spots, but they didn't concede any easy switches where Phoenix guards could exploit slow-footed big men. And I thought Drew Holiday in particular was a menace on the ball. 
He repeatedly forced the Suns to abandon certain action with really good ball pressure. I thought he was a bit weak earlier in the series uh, with some of his rotations and things he was doing. But again, that's partly because the scheme didn't allow him to do what he does best, which is play man-to-man defense. I also did think, though, that it helped that Aiton was in foul trouble so the Bucs could get away with playing more minutes for Portis and playing Giannis more at the five. Eric, I know you were a proponent of putting Giannis at the five more. What does that actually do for them when Giannis is at the five? When Giannis is at the five, first off, it spaces the floor, actually, for his teammates. That's that's first and foremost. Like, everything converges on Giannis, and, and guys just... They, they get free reign to shoot. And because Giannis, he completes shots at the rim at such an astronomical rate, you can't ignore him when he gets within five feet of the rim. So optimally, you never really want Giannis on the perimeter. So that's first and foremost what it does. But defensively, I also think it does a lot. Giannis is, and he can be rather, a fairly good rim protector, but... As far as his team defense, like, it's, it's fantastic uh, disrupting drive lanes. So, I mean, it's, it seems obvious now seeing him play more minutes at the five that this would be beneficial, but, you know, better late than never. <laughs> yeah, so basically when Giannis is at the five, it's not just the offensive threat, but defensively, he allows them to run any scheme they want because his versatility as a defender. It, it's kind of the same privilege that someone like Anthony Davis or Bam Adebayo affords their teams. Scheme versatility is so important, especially against a team run by a guy like Chris Paul with Monty Williams calling the plays. They're very creative, they're diverse in their play sets. So you need to approach that in in multiple ways, not just running the same kind of scheme. And he's not scheme limited like, say, Brooke Lopez is. The problem they have, though, is that this is just not a very deep Bucks team. And very often they find themselves situations where if you're going to bench Brooke Lopez, who do you have out there playing minutes? I mean, you could try putting on someone like Bryn Forbes, but he's a one-way player. You know, Bobby Portis played a big role in Game 3, but how much can you rely on him? There's a lot of faith right now being put into the likes of Pat Connaughton or P.J. Tucker, guys who are not people that the opponent fear as shooters. So they don't have any real gravity. So there's almost a need to play Brooke Lopez just to get some competent minutes out there, but obviously him being there limits what Giannis gives you from a defensive perspective and also offensively when he's at the five. And that's the rub. It, it seemed in the last series and this series, though you have Giannis playing out of position and not optimizing his offensive and defensive abilities, you kind of need Lopez out there to space the floor. And he's one of your better three-point specialists. So that spacing Giannis generates while he's at the five, the person who can most optimize that spacing is Lopez. So it's like a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. It really got me thinking about the lack of depth on both of these teams. Now, usually depth can be a bit overrated when thinking about how a team will do in the playoffs. But especially in a situation where, if you think about it, Playoff rotations are just about seven or eight people deep, right? So no one ever thinks about what my ninth man or my tenth man can do. But these two teams are putting guys out there who just aren't NBA Finals caliber players, in my opinion. You have Frank Kaminsky and Torrey Craig getting minutes for the Suns. You have Jeff Teague, a guy who looked like he was on his way out of the league a few months ago, playing significant rotation minutes on the Bucks. And I, I think it's one of those things where the injuries to both teams, to somewhat unremarkable players on both teams, I should say, in Dante Givincenzo and Dario Saric, respectively, 
They've had snowball effects down the roster where now you're playing these guys who would probably not have played at all. And some of the Suns, by the way, have no backup center at all as Jalen Smith is apparently unplayable, Darius Arch is hurt, and Kaminsky is Kaminsky. So, you know, the second that Aiton is in foul trouble like he was in Game 3, that makes him especially vulnerable. And I will give the Bucks and Bud some credit. This is the first team I thought that's really tried to go at Aiden and get him in foul trouble if possible, or at least ask some difficult questions of him from a defensive perspective. Yo, I ain't even going to fake AC. When I saw Frank Kaminsky and Jeff T come out, my brain at multiple times during the playoffs was like, yo, y'all still in the league? <laughs> they are keep cashing those checks all-stars. Frank Kaminsky might be the, the youngest guy I've ever seen that I've, I've been like, hey, he's still in the league? Jeff Teague at least makes a little sense. He's north of 30 at this point. So the fact that they're playing means that in any normal playoff situation, not 2021, it will point to those two teams being in dire straits. Yeah, no question. And Tory Craig especially is an interesting case because he was on the Bucks and they basically let him go. And now he's a member of the other team that they're facing in the finals. But it's actually kind of indictment on both teams. One, that the Bucks could actually use him. That's how little depth they have on the wing right now. And two, that the Suns need to use them because that's a little depth they have right now. So <laughs> I, I'm not really sure which team has less depth, but I think it's one of those series right now where it, you know, it's really going to come down to the star players almost overcoming some of the lack of talent around them. Which brings me then, Eric, to Devin Booker, who after game two was getting some finals MVP buzz. You had Mark Jackson, even in the midst of his relatively poor game three, calling Devin Booker a superstar. I can't help but think personally that his playoff run is being a little bit overrated here. I mean, yes, he's putting up 26, 5, and 6 for the playoffs, but he's only shooting 34% from three, and he's kind of really been on or off. I mean, do you think I'm off base here, or or do you see him as a superstar or even as a top 10 player? Nah, you're not off base at all. I think everyone's yearning, and I'm saying this because this is the comparison they made. Everyone's yearning for the next Kobe Bryant and stylistically, they are similar, so I could see why the comparisons are made, but homeboy ain't there. The thing I've noticed about Devin, it seems he's in the playoffs what he was during the regular season, what he was during last season, and at no earlier point were we saying Devin Booker was a superstar, nor were we saying that Devin Booker was a top 10 guy. So it's interesting to me to see a person who's performing very similarly to what he performed before be elevated into like being compared to a guy that was a top 12 generational talent. I, I don't get it, but it is what it is. That's a great point about Kobe because while they have similar style of play in terms of the way they can make certain shots and, and sort of their ability to operate in the mid-range, Kobe could do two things that Booker simply hasn't shown that he can do. Kobe had elite athleticism in his prime, which meant that he could get to the rim over and over again when he needed to, and he could draw fouls when necessary. Now, Booker has taken 6.8 free throws per game in the playoffs so far, but that's just not enough. And it seems like when the moment arises, he really depends upon his jump shot first. And then everything kind of goes off of that. Whereas Kobe was the reverse. He could slash first and then he could hit you with that jumper, at least earlier on in his career when he was at his most deadly. The other thing that Kobe could do that made him a bonafide star was he was a lockdown 
man-to-man defender. I believe he has something like nine first-team defense selections, something like that. Now, Booker has made strides on that end, but he's average at best. And even if we step away from the Kobe comparison and just talk about what it means to be a superstar in the NBA, in my opinion, consistency is the mark of a true superstar. And Devin Booker has not been consistent, even in the midst of this playoff run, which I think we could all say has been pretty nice to see a young player have. You know, he's performed in a lot of big games. He closed out the Lakers in a very memorable way, which I'm sure, Eric, you remember well. Okay, this ain't the time for little jabs there, AC. <laughs> I'm just saying, he closed out LeBron and, and the Lakers. when and He just put a knife in their throat in that game. but He, he was ruthless. <laughs> yeah, but then he's also had a couple of duds. And in game three, was an absolute dud. He was benched in the fourth quarter of that game. I don't know what to make of that. I'm not sure if that's because he's want to rest him and probably was a losing effort or it was a message for him to play better. What do you think about that, Eric, his, his benching? I didn't think too much of it. I, I thought Monty Williams probably was looking at the score as it ballooned and he didn't see them coming back. And it was like, let's regroup. He's having an off game. Let's figure it out. Go back to the drawing board and let's not risk injury. I mean, at this point, the injuries I've seen, I would be very reticent to have my second best player playing in the game with, you know, six, seven minutes left and you're down by 15 to 20 points. So I I really didn't think too much of it. You know, it does beg the question, though, if this entire inconsistency that he's shown, at least in the last couple rounds, is due in part to his pretty serious nose injury, right? I mean, he suffered fractured in multiple places. And I wonder if, and we might not know this until after the playoffs, where they'll tell us that he had a lot of trouble breathing or, or some fear of getting hit in the face, but he got pretty much whacked by Patrick Beverly. And I don't think he's been quite the same player since then. Surprise, surprise, Patrick Beverly doing goon stuff. Yeah, I, I thought Patrick, by the way, Patrick Beverly on the way out, when he, his push of Chris Paul was just one of the most Bush League plays I can remember in recent memory. Yeah, he's there to be an irritant. I, I don't know. I still don't know why he did that. It was it was really uncalled for. And that's saying something, considering I think CP3 is one of the most annoying irritants in the league. But yeah, there was no, no need for that. But Patrick Beverly is always straddling some line between being, you know, I'm not going to say purposely trying to injure guys, but definitely like doing things that are unnecessary and playing fair. So he's always on a very thin, thin line. So it, it wasn't actually surprising. <laughs> Speaking of guys like that, we are unquestionably about, I would say I'd give it a game before the inevitable Jay Crowder flagrant foul that's going to come the, the Bucks way. I mean, I could just see it when Giannis once again drives past their team. I just see a, a Jay Crowder takedown happening. He does it every time against elite players when he's getting dominated. I've seen it multiple times. And I'm not just talking about this playoffs run. I've seen it multiple times in his career when he was playing with Boston. I've seen him do it when he was playing in Cleveland. We're seeing it this playoffs run. He always does this when he's getting the business. So we can absolutely expect to see it. I think, Eric, we're in the same place in that we believe that Giannis at this point can play well enough to win a championship this season in this playoff run against these Phoenix Suns if he gets enough support. So we talked about the lack of depth on these teams, but they do have in the Bucks two other players who have shown on occasion to be all-star caliber players in Chris Middleton and Drew Holiday. 
how much faith in them do you have offensively to step up and sort of fill in that burn as a second or third scorer that Giannis is going to need to beat the Suns team? I have no faith at all in Drew Holiday. He's been incredibly inconsistent, and he downright disappears at times on the offensive end. And we've seen this now, the Nets series, the Hawks series, and this series. But Chris Middleton, who I've always found to be a bit of a streaky player, if Middleton plays like he did last game, which is absolutely in his wheelhouse, if he can give you 20 or more points, Giannis playing how he's playing right now, I'm almost certain they'll win. So you just need one guy, one guy to show up and be an all-star caliber talent. And Giannis, I have faith is taking this home. I, I totally agree with you on, on Drew Holiday. We've seen in the past, remember that series he had when he was in New Orleans, that run he had with Anthony Davis, where he was spectacular offensively. And we know we're going to get from Drew Holiday in the defensive end, especially as the series goes on. He adapts, and, and usually Bud uses him a little bit better as the series moves on as well, which doesn't hurt. But he starts to feel out what the opponent likes to do. He gets their tendencies, and he's he's a pest. But on offense, it's not even that he's taking and missing shots. So often he's passing up makeable shots or just making very poor decisions. And so I don't have much faith on him as an offensive player. But when it comes to Chris Middleton, I wonder if what happened here was that... So Giannis goes out in games five and six of the last series. And Middleton was spectacular and carried them a bit. Now Giannis comes back in game one of this series. And I thought that Middleton took almost too much of a backseat. Maybe he was thinking... You know, I'll let Giannis do his thing and I'll come and, you know, finish the game off in the fourth quarter. I think that it's good that the Bucs have kind of discovered that Chris Middleton is the logical closer on this team. He's a three-level scorer, an excellent free throw shooter as well. So he's the logical guy to close games. But he also should be involved in the offense throughout the game. And I think game three struck that right balance where Giannis was still featured throughout much of the game, but so was Middleton. And I thought if the game came down to it, it was close. Chris Middleton was in a position to end the game and finish it for them. Yeah, big facts. I thought the first two games, it seemed as if Middleton was deferring a little too much. I, I think when he does that, he doesn't get in a rhythm. Of course, Giannis was in and has been in a, a ridiculous rhythm, but he still needs to almost be like a, a modern day Hal Green playing with Wilt Chamberlain. Ooh, I, I love the comparison. That's that's an old school reference right there. Yeah, we, we take it back sometimes. Like, you want your big man to go off. You want him to eat. You need to feed him. Make him happy. But you still need to pick your shots, pick your places to dominate and stay in a rhythm. Because if you don't stay in a rhythm, by the time you get to the fourth quarter and it's a close game, you can't close. But, I mean, we saw even when Giannis sat and the lead started to shrink in game three, Chris Middleton was hitting some big shots because he was in rhythm. So you need that. So then, Eric, who's winning this series now? I mean, it's 2-1. You said that you believe that if Giannis gets the support that they can win, will he get that? And what's your prediction for the rest of this series? Bruh, I hope I'm not jinxing them because I have been abysmal in predictions this whole playoff run. <laughs> you and everybody else. I don't think anyone had these teams in the finals. So. <laughs> well, absolutely not. But yeah, I've been so bad. I've been terrible. So I'm going to say this and knock on wood, but I think whoever takes the next game wins the series. And I think the Bucks take the next game and the Bucks win in seven. So you have them winning that game seven in Phoenix. I think 
Giannis has a generational game seven game and they win in Phoenix. And I know I'm going out on a ridiculous limb here. Most people will say, wouldn't it be more likely for them to win in the next four games or rather, but they'll get four straight wins. But I think the Suns are going to be good for another win. But I think the Bucks take it in seven with Giannis being crowned NBA Finals MVP on Phoenix home court. I, I It's interesting. I came into this series thinking I'll be rooting for Chris Paul, but I now find myself rooting for this story of Giannis sticking in Milwaukee when he had the opportunity to leave, persevering, and maybe supplanting Kevin Durant and LeBron, all those guys, or and, and putting himself up there, at least in the discussion with them, as the best player in the world. But I just don't see that happening, and I think it's for a couple of reasons. Obviously, the Suns had to be favored here because they're up 2-1. But the real problem I see here is that Giannis has to be historically good for the Bucks to even have a chance. What you said, Eric, before was if Giannis keeps playing like this and gets some help, then the Bucks can win. Well, neither is a given because I don't think you expect anyone to play like this for multiple games going forward. And as game two showed, even if Giannis does play like this, there's no guarantee that Middleton or Holiday will show up. That being said, I do think the physicality of Giannis and the size of the Bucks in general is going to be an increasing problem for the Suns. What I have to predict, though, I'm going to go with the Suns in six purely because they have a more varied offense. And when it comes to clutch scoring, they have much better guys at creating clutch shots in Chris Paul and Devin Booker. And also just from the free throw line, they're the best free throw shooting team in the NBA. I think it's going to matter in this series if there's ever a close game, which we haven't had yet. But I'm going to admit, I don't feel great about that prediction. And I do find myself rooting for the Bucks, despite being a lifelong fan of the point guard. Chris Paul. Yeah, I've always been a CP3 hater of sorts. Um, or, <laughs> or, or, or as I like to call it, a CP3 truther. <laughs> so, so is, that, I, is that a CP3 truther about the flopping? Or is it about the edge of dirty play with him? Or he's not good enough? Or what is it? Oh, it's, 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 it's edge of dirty play, flopping. And I just feel that historically... He's been elevated in our basketball consciousness, and he hasn't done enough winning up to this point. So that's that's always been my thing. I I've had many a person argue me down about this, and I feel like I'm I'm out here fighting like the good fight. But I do think your reasoning behind your prediction is actually really really sound. The one thing I will say, and I think we've seen this with physical talents who are reminiscent of LeBron or Shaq at some point. If they keep getting to the rim and they keep banging on you, they wear you down over time. For sure. So I would like to see if Giannis keeps playing the way he does, the physical like toll in this war of attrition that begins to take place. I, I want to see how the Suns like handle that in the next couple of games. So I, I think that to me is the great variable that could sway the series in the favor of the Bucks. Uh, that's a great point, Eric. And I completely agree. I, I see them totally packing the paint going forward and, and trying to say, hey, someone besides Giannis beat us. And they've already done that to some degree. Giannis is kind of going through them anyway. But I think they can pack the paint even more and really dare the likes of Connaughton, Portis, etc. to beat them from three, which I'm not convinced they can do. But we'll see. Big facts. I, I mean, we will see. I think it's more than likely your scenario will come true. I, I think definitely going forward, they're up to one. They should be the favorites, the Suns. But 
I mean, that's the great thing about watching ball. Every decade or so, you see a transcendent generational talent take the leap and turn into something that they had up until that moment not actually like and materialized into. And it seems like this really could be Giannis' moment. So I'm I'm rooting for that. Same. I think that just about covers everything for the first three games of the series. Thanks for listening to Brown Men Won't Jump. You can hear us on a multitude of streaming platforms. We hope to have you back. Peace out, guys. Deuces.